Good morning, church family. If you'll please stand as we read the word of God. This morning we'll be in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to, the, to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from, our, from error or impurity or any intent to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from uh, you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you would become very dear to us. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I don't encourage you as you do. If you have a Bible, to grab it, get it out, or open it up, scroll to it um, as we work through that passage this morning. Um, for the last 12 weeks, we've been walking through a sermon series called The Gospel, looking at how the gospel transforms my heart, our hearts, the individual Christian. It brings death to life and it changes us. And it begins there in us, and then it changes the way that we as a people, the church, the second part, it changes and forms us as a church in a few particular ways. And then the last three weeks, this will be the third week, we've been looking at how the gospel moves us on mission towards others. That, that the gospel is not meant to terminate with you, to end with you, but it's meant to and naturally should produce something in you, and that's movement. And so as we continue on that journey, today we're specifically looking at how the gospel moves our words towards others on mission. Um, in 1775, uh, in the colonial uh, East, um, there was a moment in history most of you probably could talk about or tell some story a little bit about. Right before the Battle of the Lexington and Concord, uh, there was a famous person, some of it's been kind of like um, taken and embellished and somewhat, and his name was Paul Revere. Right? We are probably familiar with that name, maybe. Uh, what did Paul Revere do? Paul Revere saw that the British were coming, and what did he do? He hopped on his horse, and he went riding through the cities, yelling, the British are coming. At least we think he did. We'll just go with the fun story we've heard. The British are coming, the British are coming, the British are coming. So he, he saw something, uh, he had a message to be delivered, and he hopped on his horse, and he rode through the town, declaring that message to everyone who he heard or he saw. The, the British are coming. Why? Because there was a message that he needed to communicate, and it moved him into action. That it moved him to, to actually go about declaring this message that he needed to declare, that, that he had received, and it produced action. It produced change, and it brought about movement and transformation. What happened in that moment? Movement, transformation. He rode through, the militias uh, gathered together, and they began the Revolutionary War. Because one guy saw an issue, saw something, and, and he moved to communicate that message. 
in the same way the gospel is a message. It's a message from God that's meant to move us. We can't simply uh, intellectually submit to or agree with the gospel. Or just simply intellectually or agree with the reality that Jesus has called us and commissioned us to be a people who go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We can know that all we want, but it must move us. One pastor, he tells an illustration kind of how this, this, this issue arises in a lot of uh, Western church, uh, probably across the globe to be honest, but in particular he uses this example of a time whenever uh, he, he told his daughter to go clean her room. And he tells her, hey, I want you to go clean your room. And she's like, okay. And then he goes about and he, I don't know, mows the yard, does something. It's Saturday afternoon. And, and he comes back and he's like, hey, um, did you clean your room? Let's go see. And he goes up with his daughter into her room and, and her room is still a disaster. He's like, honey, I, I told you to clean your room. She's like, but dad, 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 I remember you told me to clean my room. I, I remember that I was supposed to clean my room. Your specific words were, hey, go clean your room. And I remembered it exactly. I memorized it. And then, and then I actually went and I texted my friend and was like, hey, guess what? My dad told me to go clean my room. I'm supposed to clean my room. Apparently, you're supposed to do this. Hey, you want to come over and let's talk about how we should clean our rooms? Hey, let's even get some friends together and do a study on how we should clean our rooms. But what happened? She never cleaned her room. Despite the understanding, so she knew what she was supposed to do. She even got other people who were in similar situation there, like, hey, let's clean the room. Let's, let's figure out a way to clean the room. What's the best way? I mean, uh, my, uh, some people I know very, very closely, my wife, uh, whenever we were, uh, we talk about growing up in childhood, like we cleaned totally differently. When she would be told to clean her room, what did she do? It was an ordeal. It was get everything out and let's reorganize the whole shenanigan, the whole thing, just completely, completely reorganized. Uh, I'm like, okay, let's find where does stuff stuff, where does it go? Where do we, how can we make this look clean? Like that's how, that's how it played out in my life. But, but nonetheless, like uh, when, when she was given the, the command from her father, go clean your room, he didn't intend on her memorizing the command. He didn't intend on her getting a group of friends together to discuss the best strategies or, or ways to clean the room. He intended on her to do what? To go clean the room. So here's what that unveils to us. This is what we're going to look at uh, throughout this morning. It's not a a head problem. It's not an understanding issue. We can can work really easily with misunderstandings. But for most of us, when it comes to the commands Jesus has laid out for us, the most basic and important of them all, to go therefore and make disciples, to live our lives on mission, it's not a comprehension issue. And we build strategies in church all around trying to help us comprehend how to do this. Uh, how to better do this, or like this steps of that, or uh, all these tools and all this stuff to help us understand. The problem is not understanding. The problem is not our mind. The problem is not memorizing. The problem is our heart. That our heart overflows into all of our life. Out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart... Or Yeah, the heart speaks. The heart speaks through our words, through our actions, that our hearts are what actually move and motivate us, which is why we started there, which is why maybe you've missed, it's been spring break, which has been kind of interesting to 
kind of pass her through, but if your heart is not the place where mission begins, we looked at the compassion of Jesus towards the widow at Nain, that he saw her, that he had compassion, desire to feel with her, and it moved him towards her. And we said, hey, I want you to commit one person for one week that you're going to take your heart toward in prayer. And then last week, Pastor Brandon did an excellent job of unpacking how the gospel doesn't just move our hearts, but it moves our hands, that our hearts overflow into our actions. And he specifically walked through the Good Samaritan, this picture of what it actually means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. That it must move towards others in compassion with our hands. And today, specifically, that our hearts continue being transformed by the gospel to move our words towards others, to move our words. This is the main point. This is everything that we're going to get at today. The gospel moves our words towards others on mission. And it begins in our hearts, it moves in our hands, but it moves our words towards other people on mission. So we're going to look at that in this particular passage in the the book of 1 Thessalonians, and to kind of catch you up, to kind of give you an idea of it, what's happening in this moment. Paul's writing this letter to a church in Thessalonica, um, or Thessaloniki, depending on how you want to say Greek stuff. But nonetheless, uh, he's writing this letter to a church that he planted. He went into this town, he told them the gospel, and this church and this movement of followers of Jesus happened. And so chapter one does a really good job of painting a picture of what's going on in this church. It says that they've received the gospel, that they've put their faith in Jesus, that their hearts have been changed to the point to where they're actually imitators of God now. They're doing the things of God instead of the things of the flesh, that they've actually become an example to the entire region That this church in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, have become an example of what it looks like to believe in Jesus, live as the church, and be on mission to the whole region. That in Philippi, they're like, yeah, 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 y'all hear about what's happening in Thessalonica? That in Galatia, Galatians, the book of Galatians, they're like, hey, y'all hear about what's happening in Thessalonica? That all the churches are encouraged because of what's happening in this church, in this city, in this region. That the gospel's not only impacted and transformed them, but it's begun to spread everywhere through them. That that everywhere begins to hear the truth of the gospel because of this church. That, That they're hearing the stories about how these people who used to be so wrapped up in idol worship, not like intellectual idol that we all struggle with, it's also material, but not for today. Uh, but all, they, they specifically are literally worshiping idols, like giant temples built to the god of sex, or to the god of the sea, or the god of this, or the god of that, like literal idols, and that they've, as a people, they have turned away from all those idols to serve the one true God. What's happening in the, the, the city of Thessalonica? Revival. That the Lord has brought in this people from death and the curse of sin to life, and it's showing throughout all of their life. That this, this is true transformation among this community happening. And how? How does it happen? How does that happen? Because the Holy Spirit empowered Paul with the gospel to go and boldly proclaim it to these people. That, that one man and his pals, Paul, 
obey the call of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to these people and boldly proclaim it because it's the power of salvation. And then we begin to see the gospel work. And we begin to see the gospel do this. It changes the person. It cultivates the church. And then they begin to see transformation across their whole region. Like, Do we, this is uh, rhetorical, but I hope it stirs in you, do we long to see that happen here? Yeah, there's churches here. We're here. We're a church. There was no church in Thessalonica. Different context. But still, people entrenched in idolatry who are wandering through life, drifting without hope, seeking to find pleasure and joy and life and, and peace and all of these other things. It's the same heart issue, but playing out in different scenarios. But do we long to see what happened in the city of Thessalonica happen in the city of Crowley or Burleson? in our neighborhoods, among our neighbors? Do we long to see people drifting through life with no hope brought to life? Do we long to see people worshiping at the feet of idols of success and wealth find true joy in Jesus? Do we long to see our friends, our neighbors who are hurting and suffering find comfort and peace in the gospel of Jesus? Do we? I know this. God wants that for Crowley and Burleson. God desires that for your neighbor, for your friend, for your coworker. And my hope is that we as a people would love them like God does, enough that we would move towards them to see that happen, to see revival take place. See, God has a plan for that to happen. And His plan is us, the church. His plan for people being brought from death to life to believe the gospel, to be transformed, to, to see this like regional outbreak of the gospel take place. Sorry for using the word outbreak in the middle of a pandemic. But nonetheless, to, to, to see that take place in people's hearts, it happens through us. It happens through us, the people who have received this message, carrying it across the street to the office next door to the classroom next door to your in-laws to your friends we are messengers sent by God to carry the message of reconciliation the gospel to the world and it starts right here. It starts right here. This morning as we walk through this passage, we're going to see that the gospel moves our words in three particular ways. So if you're a note taker, I even did alliteration for you. <laughs> it moves... <laughs> I got some golf claps in the back over there. So. Uh, it moves our words in three particular ways. It moves our words with purpose. It moves our words with perseverance. And it moves our words with purity. So let's walk through this. It moves our words with purpose. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 says this. It'll be up on the screen. If you want to follow in your Bible, you're welcome to. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That Paul came to them not in vain. And we, we don't use the word vain very much. We use the word vanity occasionally or be familiar with the word. The word vain means pointless or aimless, without 
intention. And what Paul says here is uh, this revival that took place throughout the city and the region of Thessalonica came. Why? Because he knows, they know. They didn't come aimlessly or without intention, but they came very intentional with a God-gospel-driving, moving act of intention for their eternal good. That, that our words ought to move towards others with purpose, with intention, not in vain or aimless. This is the gospel. The gospel is God moving towards us with intentionality, right? We're not deists. We don't think God exists and the world just kind of does whatever it wants and God just kind of like, oh yeah, sure, whatever, whatever, whatever. No. Since before the foundations of the world, God had a plan and he began working that plan with in, like, incredibly precise precision and purpose. Down to the individual soul kind of purpose. And all of the things that lead into it. The gospel moves us with that same intentionality, with that same purpose. And what we find ourselves oftentimes, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to this mission that Jesus has called us to be on, with this idea we've talked about a few times of mission drift. The danger of mission drift. The cost of mission drift. Think about it like this. Uh, I, I think the SpaceX stuff that's happening is super fascinating. Maybe you're not into that thing. I'm not like, let's dive in to read all the science articles and whatnot, but I like to watch the videos and I think it's really cool. But nonetheless, like, I mean, the idea of like landing rocket boosters, it's amazing and they're cool to see watch. The other day, uh, Friday, there was a rocket booster um, that SpaceX, Falcon 9 rocket booster, they shot up like last year. And it got off course on re-entry and just began to orbit the earth. Instead of re-entering, it just began to orbit the earth. And what happened? On Friday, they got a really cool light show over Oregon and uh, Washington. As that thing started to re-enter our atmosphere and just obliterate. Just like at night, just like sparks flying across the entire sky. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? I love Facebook Live. Like the whole thing. And, and what happened? The, SpaceX is like, oh yeah, sorry guys. Eight months ago, we forgot, we messed up, and uh, now you're going to reap the benefits. So like, what happened there? That rocket booster was not on the right trajectory to re-enter the atmosphere and land safely. It was just a few degrees off, away from the earth. And so what happened? Boop, just skips off and begins to just circle the earth. It was March when the thing tried to come down. So a whole year, it's like just doing circles. And then it eventually got close enough to where it starts to enter the atmosphere again. And the heat of the atmosphere destroys it. What happens if the, that same rocket booster is headed into the Earth's atmosphere at too sharp of an angle? Same thing. Instead of skipping off, it just burns up now. Falls apart and blows up. On re-entry. There's a very small, narrow margin at which they can re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and not either shoot off and keep doing circles for a year or obliterate when they come down. In the same way, like we have to be concerned with this, this idea of mission drift, that as a Christian, we've been given a mission and we are not supposed to veer left or right. 
And if we veer left or right, we see the results. We see churches sit with signs outside that are, are dead. Maybe people sitting in them, but they're largely spiritually dead. Because they've drifted off course missionally. They're not about what Jesus has called them to be about anymore. We've seen, we've seen this take place. You may see it in your own life. You know, we begin to see mission drift and affect our own joy in Jesus. And so what, Paul, what drives Paul to go to these people? What is it that, that moves him with this intentionality? The gospel and the Holy Spirit. That Paul walks in step with the Holy Spirit. And in walking in step with the Holy Spirit, he remembers that he's been called by God to a purpose. That his whole life and his words are to be carried out with purpose. The purpose he's called him to. So that for him, the whole Gentile people would come to faith in Jesus. Yet still longing for the Jews to get to know Jesus. See, God has not unintentionally put you where you are. With the interest you have, the jobs you have, the, the place you live, the friends you have, the neighbors you have, the careers you carry. He hasn't done that on accident, but with a ton of intentionality. So that you might live on mission with purpose, with intentionality. So maybe for us it's time to course correct. It's time to course correct. We've gotten distracted. And it's time to course correct. So what is it? It's really helpful to identify whenever we've gotten off track, why we've gotten off track. So what is it that's distracted you from, from what God has called you to do? To make disciples. To move towards those who need Jesus. Maybe it's fear. Like fear of missing out. If I do that, then I don't get to do this. Fill in the blank. Maybe it's fear and self-preservation. Fear of the unknown. What would happen if I did that? I don't know. It might not go well. Whatever distraction may find you, when we find ourselves distracted from what God has called us to do, we're being led by our flesh and not by the Spirit. What's this going to cost me? How is it going to impact me? Like, uh, what if I don't know what to say? Or what if I don't this or don't that? And our flesh begins to guide us. And here's the deal. Our flesh never naturally moves on mission for the gospel. And we're not in neutral. We're either in reverse or we're in drive. We're either moving on mission or we're moving away from other people in self-preservation, in fear, whatever it may be. So are you aimless in the purpose which you live your life? Are you a wanderer? My encouragement for you is to remember. Remember who you are, whose you are, and what He's called you to do. Maybe you, you have bad aim. But let's correct it. You've been intentionally aiming your life at the wrong thing. 
your mission is not God's mission. And so you're aiming at the wrong thing. Success, wealth, security, whatever it may be. Instead of bad aim, aiming at the wrong thing, let's, let's confess of that, repent, and, and begin aligning our hearts with the mission that God has called us to. Intentional purpose, this like the gospel moves my words with purpose, does not come easy, nor does it come naturally. You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to identify why. And do the heart level work, asking the Lord to cultivate a change and transformation in your heart to align you with His purpose for you so that you would move towards others with your words on mission with purpose. The second thing is the gospel moves our words towards others on mission with perseverance. With perseverance. Verse 2 says this, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That The gospel moves our whole lives and our words towards others on mission with purpose, and it moves them with perseverance. You see, living your life missionally is risky. It's risky. It is. It's risky. And we see this take place here. Like Paul's literally suffered and been shamefully treated. That's not just like I got beaten. That's the kind of uh, mistreatment that you've, you don't want to talk about. It's not like, hey, I got beat up. It's like, hey, they like did some nasty stuff to me, kind of shameful. That it, it was risky for Paul to go to Thessalonica, having just felt the suffering in Philippi. That it cost, it cost Paul physically. Well, we, we, we always see this, if you, if you read through the book of Acts, you see the persecution costs that the gospel moving Paul on mission cost him. And there's some ways in which we're like, yeah, that's just not us. And it's like, you're right. You're right. In some ways, it's not going to cost you physically. Your body is probably not going to get hurt moving towards somebody else with the love and compassion of Jesus, including your words, to speak the truth of the gospel to them. But it didn't only cost Paul physically. It cost Paul time. Time with people that Paul probably would have loved to spend time with. Time with loved ones, with dear friends. Man, I wish I could stay in your city for another five years or just retire here and we just like live it up, pal. But I can't. It cost him energy, physical energy, emotional energy. Social energy? Any introverts out there? It cost him money. Like literally his own money. It cost him emotional, like emotional bandwidth, emotional energy. Have you ever uh, like really cared a lot about someone else? 
It's tiring. Emotionally tiring. And it's hard to put words or like communicate. It's like, uh, yeah. It's risky. And here's the deal. God's called us to the same thing Paul has. To us, we may not be like, hey, let's go to Thessalonica. But hey, let's go talk to Steve next door. It's still risky. It risks your time. It risks your energy. It risks your money if we're actually taking our hands towards people with the gospel. It costs us emotionally to listen and care. It may cost you physically. It costs us. It's risky. It's risky because we don't actually know what it's going to cost before we take those steps. But what does Paul say here? Despite the risk, the suffering and everything I just experienced, and I'm about to walk into a new city that's really a lot like Philippi. They worship all the same gods. They speak all the same language. It's like going from Lubbock to Fort Worth. There's a lot of similarities here. There's some distinctions. There's a lot of similarities here. It's not like Dallas-Fort Worth. They're very different, but nonetheless. It, it cost. It was risky. These people might treat me the same way the last one did. But what does Paul say? As you know, we had boldness. As you know, we had boldness. Living our lives on mission requires boldness. And what, what is boldness? It's the ability and the confidence and courage to take risk. Boldness is the ability, confidence, and courage to take risk. Every time Levi, my son, walks up to the, the home plate, he feels the risk of getting hit by that ball. Every time. And so it, it requires confidence in his ability and courage to take that risk. It requires boldness. And here's the deal. We feel this. Why? Because faced with a moment and opportunity to be uh, missional in, in our prayers, it's about the easiest place we can live, in our, in our actions to move towards in hospitality somebody else that needs Jesus, or in our words, every time we're faced with what? The overwhelming feeling of inadequacy that you have no idea what you're doing. Right? Faced with this reality, this is going to take some boldness. This is going to take some courage. This is going to take some ability. This is going to take some confidence. And oftentimes, here's the deal. We're faced with that boldness and we're like, it's too risky. I can't do it. I don't have the ability. I don't have the confidence. And I don't have the courage to do it. I don't have the boldness. And I want to say this. You're right. You don't. And, and that's okay. Why? Because what does Paul say? As you know, we had boldness in our God. That Paul's ability, confidence, and courage to take the risk was not based on his ability, his confidence, or his courage. But on God. 
that faced with the risk of moving my life towards somebody else on mission is risky. It's scary. We don't know what's going to happen. And if we try to muster up boldness, confidence, courage, inability inside of ourselves, it never changes the outcome. Anybody ever gone to some evangelistic training where you learned seven different ways to tell us about Jesus and didn't do anything? Why? Because you're trying to create and cultivate boldness with inside yourself. And Paul says here, boldness to go and live missionally doesn't come from within you. It comes from our God. This is what Joshua, Joshua 1.9, he's about to take the entire multi-million dollar people, million dollar, million people of God uh, on this like, hey, let's go and enter the promised land and fight all these wars and all this stuff. And he's like, I can't do this. And what does God say? Have, you, have I not commanded you? Like, let's, let's slow down, bro. Who told you to do this? Was it not me? You know, the God of the universe who has power and control over everything that's ever been? Was it not me who commanded you? Joshua, be strong. Be courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is plastered, not literally plastered. It's on a display in my kid's room. Why? Because I pray that they put their faith in Jesus and they walk with a boldness, with a strength and courage, without fear, wherever the Lord may lead. Why? Because He has commanded them. So our confidence, our boldness, our ability, our courage to go and live missionally, to embrace the risk of talking to your neighbor, that courage, that confidence, that boldness, comes from the one who has commanded us to do it. Jesus. What does he say? Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you until the end of the age. Acts 1.9, we see what happens. Or one, Acts 1.8. Go throughout all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, proclaiming the gospel why? Because the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So it's not a problem of, of ill-equipping for a mission. God's not a, a, a military commander who sent his people into battle without arms. He has adequately, more than adequately, equipped us. The Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling within you. The problem then lies is not is not whether boldness is available for us to persevere through the risk. It's a matter of where we're trying to access it. Are we trying to access and, and have boldness from within our flesh or from our God who has commanded us to go? So maybe the, the, the move here of this, like the gospel moves me on mission towards others with my words and perseverance, seeing the risk, you wrote that name down on that card, praying about them. Okay, I'm going to pray. And I'm even just praying, God, would you provide an opportunity? Is scary. Because if he does, then I feel like I should do it. And then if I have to do it, then I'm going to be scared. And if I'm going to be scared, then I'm going to need boldness. I'm going to have risk. And I'm going to persevere through that risk. And yeah, it's just like this snowball thing just rolls out. Maybe not, maybe your mind doesn't do that. Maybe, <laughs> or maybe my mind's super fast. So it happens like that fast, but nonetheless. Uh, and then the idea of moving your hands to have somebody who doesn't know Jesus into your house for dinner. 
or to get lunch with you at work is scary. What if they say no? Let me just say this. What if they say no? <laughs> Ask again. That's my, my, my MO. <laughs> like, and to speak the truth of the gospel to somebody requires boldness. And to take our fears to the Lord, maybe confess to Him, God, I've been trying to muster boldness within myself, and I'm done. I need you to give me the confidence, the abilities, Holy Spirit, and the courage, also Holy Spirit, to go and live my life on mission. To remember the promises of our God who has commanded us. I'm with you. I got you, bro. It's okay. The other thing I think we ought to do in a moment of evaluating the risk is to re reevaluate our value system. Like, is it worth the risk? Like, ask yourself that question. Like, when, you, when you've drawn up your plan, if you're like me or if you're not, maybe you should, maybe not, I don't know. If you've drawn up a plan of like, okay, this is Judy and Judy lives next door and I really want to talk to Judy and have her over for lunch or something. Like, how are we going to do that? Okay, what are we going to provide? Like, okay, we're going to plan this whole thing and then we're going to make the ask. You've done all of that. And you're like, okay, I can kind of see a little bit of what the risk is. Like, is it worth it? Is it worth the time that I've put into this plan for her to say no? Is it worth the energy of having her into our home? And who knows what's going to happen? I don't know. Is it worth the, the monetary cost of providing a meal in a space of hospitality? Is it worth it? Even if it costs you thousand dollars would it be worth it if it cost you ten thousand dollars what if it cost you an entire day of your life or year of your life what if it cost you mentally or emotionally more than you think you can give what if there's real genuine potential physical pain or even death on the other side of that risk. Is it worth it? Is that person's life, their eternity, was moved from death to eternal life with God? Joy, is it worth it? Is there anything you would not be willing to give for somebody else's eternity? Paul says, I wish I could give you my, my eternity. He's like, Paul literally loves people so much that he's like, I'll go to hell if all of them can go to heaven. Like that's, that's willingness, right? Is it worth the risk? I mean, I think when you put $10,000 next to eternity, it feels fairly small. It just feels like non-existently small. The gospel moves our hearts, our, our hands, and our words towards others on mission. And it moves us to persevere through the risk with boldness in our God. The last thing is the gospel moves our hearts, our hands, specifically this week, our words towards others on mission with purity. I'm not talking like you know the sexual purity talk thing, so hang on with me as we talk about the word purity here. Verses 3 through 7 say this For our appeal 
does not spring, that's our, our, our like pleading with you to believe the gospel, does not spring up from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have demanded as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That that Paul's uh, approach to the people of Thessalonica with the gospel, his literal movement in there to tell them the truth of the gospel, was carried through the risk, through boldness, courage, all that stuff, missionally there to speak the words of the gospel with purity. It wasn't with error. He wasn't like wrong. Like, Like to give you some confidence, the gospel is not wrong. It's right. So in the face of anybody who disagrees with you, you're right. Even if you can't explain it and you shouldn't argue it, you should have confidence that what you're saying is true. It wasn't for the sake or means of manipulation. There was no, uh, he says, this pretext for greed. He's saying, like, my heart was not ulteriorly motivated. And yes, I know, he says this, God's the only one who's a witness of my heart. There was no selfish motivation or manipulation in preaching the gospel to them. That it wasn't a means of earning praise to go, hey, check out, I planted the church at Thessalonica and everybody knows about it. It's pretty awesome. Like, no, it's not as a means of praise. It's not to build oneself up. He doesn't do it for personal gain, monetarily or otherwise. He doesn't do it for personal glory. For us, we don't do this to check a box and feel some sense of accomplishment. We don't, we don't share the gospel with somebody because we're right and they're wrong. We don't share the gospel with somebody because there's some sense of a project. What is, what is it that motivates Paul to, to move towards these people with his words on mission? He unpacks this in the last verse. But we... We're gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That what motivates Paul is pure, pure. Like it's like unfaltered, pure love. What motivated Paul, what moved him to preach and proclaim the gospel to these people was love. First, a love for God. He says, this isn't to please you, this is to please the Lord. That in Paul's approach to his neighbor on mission is the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Pastor Brandon walked through last week. The Good Samaritan story falls out of a question about how do I have eternal life? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Paul's MO for mission was, I do this because I love the God who has loved me enough to save my soul. Motivated by pure love for God, for Him to be glorified 
through them in these people and see them come to joy, life, freedom from sin, and have eternal life. But also a love for neighbor. That, that Paul, he unpacks this. He says, not for God, or not for myself, but for the Lord. And then he goes on and he talks about how this was, uh, they handled themselves with gentleness like a nursing mom with a baby. What is a nursing mom willing to give for that baby? Everything. Whatever it may cost. Her, herself. Physically, literally. Emotionally. Her rest, her energy, her time, her career, maybe. Why? Because they love them more than they love themselves. Like, if, if there was a number that God could say, like, hey, if you would give me this, I'll save your kids. <laughs> I don't care what it is, I'm paying it. I don't care. I don't care if uh, every day of my life is lived in service to that debt, I'd do it. Why? Because I love them so much that that's what I long for most in their life. Like a, like a nursing mom longs for the life, the fruit, the vitality, the joy, the development of this kid. Paul longs for the salvation of these people. That there's nothing he's not willing to risk. Nothing he's not willing to give. And there's nothing Paul's not willing, like a nursing mom, there's nothing she's not willing to give. For that baby. Because Paul's motivation to take that risk, to boldly move towards that person or this entire community on mission, was motivated with pure love. A pure love that he had received from God. A pure love that he had been given by Jesus and that he then showed towards others. Is it worth it? I mean, I'd encourage you at lunch, ask any mom you know if it was worth going through all the things she went through to have a baby, to care for that baby as long as it shall live. She's going to say Yes. Was it hard? Yeah. Is it hard? Yeah. Do you know what you're doing? No. <laughs> but is it worth it? Yeah. So I, I go back up to where we were. Is it worth what it might cost you to move towards somebody else on mission? What if it literally cost you over the course of a week or months thousands of dollars to move on mission towards your neighbor without knowing whether or not they were going to put their faith in Jesus. But knowing that the gospel is the power of salvation and that they might. And you can trust God with that. Would it be worth it? Yeah. Yeah. It would be. For somebody's entire eternity to be changed, would it be worth it? Yes. 
See, for us, the mission of making disciples, of moving towards others, must be motivated by a pure love for God and neighbor. And if it's not, so the lack of living missionally in our life, uh, we can say, oh, I just didn't understand. Well, now you do. Uh, But understanding isn't going to change anything. What a lack of living missionally unveils is a lack of, or a, a lack or uh, a little love of God, a lack of or a little love for your neighbor. Now, we wouldn't want to say it like this that we're okay with that person suffering the curse of sin and death and going to hell, but are we concerned? Are we concerned enough? Do we love enough? Are we willing enough to do something about it? I, I, I know those are hard words. But at the other side of saying yes is a ton of joy and gladness. What does Paul finish this with? He says, so, taking everything I've just said into account in verse 8, he says, so, being affectionately desirous of you. Like wanting you to be a part of the family of God and experience life and joy, freedom from sin, and all of eternity with God. Wanting you. We were ready. Ready to share not only the gospel, but our entire selves because you had become so very dear to us. Giving all of ourselves so that they might believe. Desiring them. A readiness to move. Let's go. Let's go. A willingness to preach the gospel. Readiness and active obedience to say the truth of the gospel that Jesus came to die on a cross to take your sins and to give you forgiveness. He rose from the dead, completing all of it. So if you put your faith in Him, you're forgiven. You receive mercy and grace and eternal life. A willingness to say that. A willingness and readiness to share your whole self with someone else. Why? Because they had become very dear to you. Love. Maybe this is really foreign to you today and you're like, I don't know. Like, well, You're talking about all this and it sounds really like some combination of convicting, compelling, exciting, and like, uh, I don't know what to do with this. And maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never received the love that we're describing us having, ha- having for someone else. I want to encourage you that God loved you enough to do something about it. I loved you enough that when He saw you in your sin, He did something about it. He moved towards you in the physical form of Jesus to die in your place to rise from the dead, so that by faith you would be saved. Maybe today it's putting your faith in Jesus, to believe that He died for you, that He rose from the dead for you, and being saved.
Maybe for you, if you've put your faith in Jesus, it's asking the Lord to cultivate this kind of desire and affection and dearness for others. That you would be moved on mission towards them. Maybe it's to just own, like, hey, this isn't, I'm not Paul. Not in the, like, dismissive manner, but in the, like, I want to be. And so I ask you, like, to, to go before the Lord and ask Him to cultivate that, uh, that laser-sharp focus and purpose in your life. Maybe it's asking the Lord to give you that perseverance that Paul has, that he displays here, a willingness and a boldness to risk for the good of another. Maybe it's asking the Lord to give you a pure motivation and a love and affection for that one person. I want to encourage you, if you have not, it's not too late, it's never too late, I want to encourage you, if you have not taken, like, this isn't, you don't have to do this in order to, like, be on mission with Jesus, but I have found in my life, the more tangible steps that I can make, the more likely that it's actually going to take place. So if you haven't, every one of the chairs in this room has one of these cards in it. If there's somebody in your mind that you're like, God is telling me, I need to move towards them on mission. Write their name on this card. Write it right here for your reminder. Write it over here, tear it off. You can take steps of like, yes, I'm going to do this to literally put it on this board. We're not like, this isn't like a trophy wall. Just FYI, this is there completely for us to take steps of intentional movement on mission. So me tearing this off and putting it up there has nothing to do with that person. It has everything to do with my heart saying, yes, God, I'm going to do this. So maybe today it's that. You take that physical step of filling out that card. As a a heart, head, hands, like let's move on mission towards this person. We would encourage you to do this week, if you have a person on that card or if you're going to write one today, or if that person's in your mind, is to take steps with your words towards them this week. Pray for them, care for them, move toward them with compassion, but, but, but take steps with your words to develop a plan. Rachel and I did this a few weeks ago. It was like, okay, we want to invite so-and-so. They live near us over for dinner. Uh, what are we going to have? When are we going to have them? Okay, let's, let's ask. And they were like, oh, we can't that day, but let's do the next. And so they're coming over on Friday. Take steps to ask. I want to encourage you, if you haven't, or if you would, on your way out, grab five, six, seven, ten, fifteen, however many of these little cards, not because it's like, oh, I can't tell somebody about Jesus without this card. This doesn't actually tell anybody about Jesus. It just isn't like, hey, I want you to experience the joy that I found in Jesus and that I experience every single week when I gather with my church. So why don't you come check us, come to Trailview. Invite them to your home group. Tomorrow's, next week's Easter. It's super easy to ask somebody to come to church on Easter. They've probably done it before. So just ask. This tells them where it is. That's all it does, just FYI. Where and when. It's a tangible thing. You tell me in my head, I'll forget about it. You tell me in my head, I might remember it. If you give me a card, there's a more likely chance I'm going to remember it. That's the whole reason these exist. So this is the purpose of it. To equip you to go and with your words, move towards somebody else. So I'd encourage you to do that. Grab five, six, seven of these on your way out. They're on the counter right back there. And as you commit to move towards that one person this week with your words, 
If they can't make it work this week, fine. Do it next week. Living on missions all of life, not like, oh, three weeks before Easter only. Okay? I want you to encourage you to pray. And then I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you to do this. When you sit down with that person, start by listening. And listen a lot. Some have said, like in, in conversations in and around where you hope to lead into Jesus uh, or to even just care with somebody with the truth of the gospel, I wish I would listen for 55 minutes and speak for the last five. Why? Because the gospel has incredible precision at caring for the minute, slight, little longings and cravings of every single individual heart. And if you don't listen, you don't know. So start by listening, and then invite. Invite them to be your friend. Maybe not like the five-year-old way. Um, maybe the five-year-old way, hey, you be my friend, kind of thing. Um, maybe in the like, hey, you want to get lunch again in a couple weeks? Or hey, you want to get together and uh, our kids all go to the park or the plaza or something, and we can get coffee and chat while they hang out? Maybe over for dinner, maybe to your home group, maybe to next week's Easter gathering where everything that we do, like every week, even more explicitly next week, is about Jesus and what he's done for us. God has moved towards us on mission. It's what the gospel is. He's brought you from death to life. He's put you into part of his family, and he sends us, moves us on mission. Sacrificing all that we have for the good of others is what God has done and what he's called us to then go and do on mission. It's not meant to terminate or sit with you, but move you on mission. So let's do this. We're going to move into a time of response. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe it's confession and in prayer. Or maybe it's standing and singing. Maybe it's to sit and just listen. Maybe it's to come and talk to Pastor Brandon. He'll be over here or me. I'll be over here. would love to, to sit with you, talk with you. Maybe it's, hey, I need to get up and I need to fill out this card and I need to put it on that wall as a step of commitment for my heart to move towards this person. Whatever it may be, I want to encourage you to do it. To take steps towards whatever God's calling you to right now. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for being so loving that you would move towards me. Jesus, thank you so much for seeing the cost and saying, yes, And God, would you cultivate in us that kind of a affection and desire and dearness of heart for our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.